Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. In this episode, we will be discussing nihilism, which at the time the topic was selected had to do with the cultural milieu of meaninglessness, uh, rather non-specifically. And we are recording this podcast two weeks and one day after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what we know as of this moment is that the Russian military began a full-scale invasion of Ukraine by attacking military and many civilian targets. Vladimir Putin has made many direct and unveiled threats to those who would attempt to help the Ukrainians. The geopolitical, economic, humanitarian implications are staggering. And the current numbers of refugees are at 2.5 million. One million of those are children. So since it is entirely likely that there will be some developments in this crisis from the time that this podcast is recorded to the time that you may be listening to it, we ask your understanding if we do not adequately communicate the situation. We also ask that you join us in prayer for those impacted. So Today, as as we're talking about nihilism, I think the best place to start is to define our terms, as we love to do here. It's a great place to start. So the definition of nihilism is not universally agreed upon as the usage varies. So I'd like to hear from both of you about how you understand nihilism philosophically. JP? Well, I I would understand it to, to basically be the claim that nothing matters. There's no purpose to anything. There's nothing that matters. There's no difference between good and evil, right and wrong. And so everything is ultimately just meaningless. I couldn't add much more to that. There's simply no objective value, meaning purpose in anything on on this view. There is another uh, view that I don't think we want to talk about, but this is sometimes called uh, ontological or person nihilism, which is the idea that per- there just are no such things as persons, uh, that we are simply machines, uh, biological machines, and that persons don't exist. But but I think the one that we're talking about is more of a, what would you say, Stan, a kind of a value, a value and moral and uh, claim or uh, teleological claim of some kind yeah, well might you just distinguish the two in that nihilism as we're going to talk about it is the broader conceptual framework and then as it's applied to what are we it is a personal nihilism yeah that would that's very good Th- thanks mm-hmm. I, I that i accept that's a good idea mm, that's a great distinction thank you both and that's going to play out uh in a lot of ways in terms of persons so we can probably get into that later but uh in some ways it's always helpful to understand a view's history and how it's situated in the flow of ideas and i think nihilism is really just enlightenment philosophy in full bloom and the enlightenment rejected everything that's not physical or tangible or or or, or measurable uh but continued to borrow capital, as it's been said, from the Christian worldview to still retain meaning and value in persons and and in some cases, other immature realities like objective morality and values. And I think 
nihilism just says, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to, to, to the fire here and say, if you really say there's no objective value or meaning, then you can't have these vestiges of value in persons or purpose. If you've already cut the legs out under it by saying that everything is subjective and meaningless. I, I might add that I don't think he used these terms, but Frederick Nietzsche said that there were really two kinds of nihilism. Uh, one of them was, I'll just call it depressive nihilism. Mm. And this, this is the idea that it matters that there would be meaning to life. Now that we have discovered that there is no meaning to life and there knows, and so on, then the question becomes, uh, why not commit suicide? Mm -hmm. Because nothing I do will ever make any difference at all. And that's, that's a, a, a sense of being let down and sad. It's, it, it's what's called angst. Uh, you get this sense of existential fear and dread because at the end of the day, it just doesn't, nothing matters, including you. Nietzsche, I think, said that that was an approach to nihilism that kind of resulted from Christianity, because Christianity, which dominated Europe and, until this took over, said that their life was just absolutely pregnant with purpose and meaning. And uh, now that that is no longer the case, there's a deep sense of disappointment. But Nietzsche said that we, we should just forget about Christianity and recognize that if nothing matters, then nihilism itself should not cause us to be concerned one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the very question, is there meaning to life? And if so, what is it? It's just a pointless question. So right. we, we don't worry about that. We just live our, we live day by day. And don't worry about there being no meaning because that question shouldn't be asked in the first place. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting that a lot of the popularization of nihilism happened toward the end of Nietzsche's life um, and also posthumously, which seems fascinating that this this became his legacy of all that he of all that he did and said. I, I think it speaks to the the idea that philosophers are often perceived as prophets in, in later times because mm -hmm. they're able to follow a logical conclusion through to its end and, you know, see what's going on in the culture and say, okay, God is dead and we have killed him. And here's what I think that's going to end up meaning. That's both the, the challenge and the gift of philosophy is that you can follow those. You can see what's going on in a culture or in a moment and follow it through to, okay, well, what does that, mm -hmm. what does that mean next? What was going to happen without God? When I did my master's at University of California, Riverside, uh, the chair of the department, Bern Magnus, was one of the world's top Nietzsche scholars. Mm -hmm. He was a Jewish atheist and he accepted Nietzsche's view lock, stock and barrel. He was Nietzsche. Wow. And he adopted the second view that it, it's only because we thought there would be a purpose that we're disappointed and we should have never thought that to begin with, mm -hmm. then uh, life is meaningless and we sort of eat, drink, and be merry. 
that's that's sort of an attitude, even though there's no mm-hmm. purpose in that. Mm-hmm. So uh, you either go uh, the route of uh, uh, the existentialists who have dread because there's no meaning, or you go with Hugh Hefner or something else, uh, and uh, those are your options. But uh, if I just can continue for a minute, in what I take to be one of the most brilliant texts in all of Scripture is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, especially 1 through 7, if I'm not mistaken. And, and what Solomon does is write a book from the perspective of there not being any God uh, and, and wanting to ask the question, given that this world is all there is, what do we make about our lives? And he says, he uses the word vanity in that book 30, 39 times, I think, and it's only used 37 times in the rest of the Bible. And it means two things. Interestingly, it means fleeting. That means that we're not here for very long. We're here and gone in a split second and purposeless or empty. And so he he goes into trying to find the best shot at making sense out of life without God. And the first thing he goes to is atomism. Because he says the you know the sun and the and the uh, the wind and the earth and the rivers keep flowing around, and what he's actually talking about are the four fundamental chem- chemical elements mm-hmm. that make everything up. And why would he turn to those? Well, if our impermanence is a source of our meaninglessness, then if we're going to look for meaning, you'd probably look to the things that are permanent and the four mm-hmm. elements are always there. They they come together and form chemicals, and then they break apart, but they're still there. So uh, he turns his mind away from us and asks, do the elements, which aren't fleeting, do they have meaning? And his answer is that all these processes happen, yet the sea is not full. And, what, and he's meaning that there's no teleology. These processes simply happen through history, and history is one blank thing after another, and none of it is done for the sake of some end, like filling the sea. So he concludes that given that our lives are fleeting and vain and empty, there is no purpose. So then he considers two ways out. First, he says, well, maybe education will do it. But his conclusion is, what is crooked can't be straightened. In other words, uh, if, if there's no ultimate point to anything, then there would not be a point to getting an education. Uh, so uh, that's, that's off the table. Then he tries pleasure. But he ends up recognizing that uh, if you, after you've had sought pleasure, he talks about, you know, wine women and collecting art objects and all sorts of things. After you've uh, gouged yourself on pleasure for a while, it becomes stale, and it's a diminishing return, and what used to please you doesn't anymore, and you're constantly in quest for new uh, addictive adrenaline rushes that that lead you to fragmentation at the end of the day. So those don't work. Isn't that interesting that he saw this way back in, you know, 1000 BC or so? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he uses in there the phrase under the sun often also because 
key phrase he says if this is all there mm-hmm. is that which we can see that which is under the sun on this side if you will of the divide then it's all meaningless yep yeah and it's interesting too those who are familiar with studying um, the beginning of genesis so the creation narrative in general might be familiar with the term ex nihilo and that latin root is the same as nihilism so out of nothing mm-hmm. and you know nothingism is kind of what we're talking about yeah exactly nice shot mm-hmm. I, I that's yeah. very good very very good and yeah, so to think that god brought creation out of nothing and towards something. And at the very beginning, we, we see the deep meaning in all of this. Uh, it just, it, it seems a, a very, very tangible thing to Solomon as, as a haver of that wisdom mm-hmm. and that he would then express it in that way. It makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Good point. So where do we see this? I, it seems that history is sort of unraveling before our eyes these days, but where do we see this cropping up in the historical narrative, especially since Nietzsche or Nietzsche, forgive me. No, I, I think Stan might know more about this than I do, but I can tell a story. Mm. Uh, Hillary Putnam was a world famous philosopher at Harvard, and he's been gone now for I'd probably toward the end of the 20th century. But in, in, in grad school, uh, I happened to walk in to Dallas Willard's office. He was the chair of the department. And Hartree Field was a professor who studied under Putnam and Quine, and he would receive a newsletter that was a private newsletter sent only to the Harvard faculty, where they would write to one another and so on, and he he was able to get a copy of it, and Dallas borrowed it. And there was an article in there by Hillary Putnam. Now, at this time, he was a very radical naturalist and, and materialist. And he was at a dinner once, and a woman at this at this dinner said to, to, to Hillary, Professor Putnam, isn't it terrible now that we know that, that the physical world and the universe is really all there is, and it is cold and quiet and utterly indifferent to us, that life has absolutely no purpose or meaning to it. Well, Putnam said that that really bothered him. So he began to write towards a new view, and his new view was to abandon the authority of science and to adopt a specific version of postmodern constructivism, uh, where the world is constructed by our theories, and it it isn't out there of its own. And he thought that what that did is is that it both relativized science and it relativized the quest for meaning and value so that it wasn't a big loss because, you know, everything is relative and we can choose our values without fearing naturalism because naturalism, that the material world is all there is, uh, is only a construction every bit as much as any other construction. The problem is, of course, that that's the cure that killed the patient. What he he should have done was accept the tremendous benefits of science, but simply added other ways of knowing that could have gotten him to God and objective value. 
But instead, he went the way of making everything ultimately a construction, which is doesn't have the gravitas to give one meaning, because there's a huge difference between an objective moral law and a custom like eating your peas with a fork instead of a spoon. Customs are, are just not that big a deal. And in a world of postmodern constructivism, nothing can rise above the level of custom. So nothing matters. And Putnam could only give us customs, not object, not real moral purpose and so on. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. Which is a big problem if we are to call an act of violence senseless mm-hmm. or unprovoked or unjust. It's like, well, that doesn't that doesn't really work, unfortunately. Classic example of that was uh, the incident in Tiananmen Square years ago. Mm-hmm. You may recall that's that the students were revolting against the oppressive uh, communist government, and that one student stood in front of a tank, mm-hmm. and uh, the the government quickly rounded up these folks and either put them in prison or executed them, and all the Western journalists that were over there covering this were outraged, mm-hmm. utterly outraged at the way that these the rights of these students was not only being suppressed and denied, but that they were being severely punished for that. And I, I got to give, I got a big kick out of that. Not that they were being punished, but the journalist reaction, Mm -hmm. because what they don't get is that there are no individual humans don't matter in a Chinese worldview. What matters is the emperor and the state Mm -hmm. and individual humans are simply means to the pleasure of the emperor and the state. Well, they have, the, the journalists have been claiming uh, some form of moral and especially certainly worldview and, and theological relativism for decades. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't impose our views on other cultures, but here they're imposing a Western understanding of human rights on a culture that just doesn't recognize that. And mm-hmm. the reason was, once again, I think is you and Stan said, they were borrowing capital from a Christian worldview without knowing they were doing it because Mm -hmm. they were appropriating the image of God, grounding that we each have equal and individual rights, which doesn't fly in in the Chinese worldview. So I would like to say to those journalists, excuse me, but use your own capital. Don't spend Mm -hmm. mine, you know. Mm Yeah, and it's certainly happening right now, even with Russian citizens who are protesting the the invasion of Ukraine, yes. and they are being severely and terribly punished, and the um, the courage it takes. And so here in the West, we are looking upon that and saying that is wrong, and we can't have it both ways. It's it's an old and tired trick, and I wonder when we're going to stop accepting it. Good point. Yeah, but it it does it does follow from the ideas that we've embraced as as as, as a culture, and and you know you ask where uh, nihilism shows up in popular culture, and I think it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. So the mantra that is so common in uh, TV shows and in commercials is that uh, there is nothing objective, whether it's values or truth or 
or purpose. Uh, so, you know, find your own road, have it your mm-hmm. way. Uh, it, it, it's all about you and what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do you follow you your you. arrow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In fact, one of my favorite movies, uh, unfortunately the, the lead articulates this probably better than anybody. Uh, uh, the Princess Bride is a great movie. Oh no! Don't ruin the Princess Bride for me, Stan. But uh, Wesley, the 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 main character, uh, is 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 quoted as saying uh, to to the, the the woman he he loves, "Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling you something. Yeah. You know, don't don't be fooled. Uh, it's all meaningless. It's all just endless angst." Mm. And, you know, there have been shows that have, I think, become popular because they tap into the sentiment, beginning maybe with maybe one before. But I remember when Seinfeld became a big hit and it was it was described as the show about nothing. Uh, the show that really was all about no ultimate meaning and purpose. So you just kind of live your life and kind of make a joke of it because there's nothing really worth living for ultimately. And so we've seen it for years and years in the broader culture. Yes. Well, and Stan, your, your point about pain, life is nothing but pain, and that's all, all there is to it. That is so interesting because Solomon, after he's shown that there's, you know, there's no way out of this, he ends up saying, since without considering God, and if this is all there is and, and, and everything is pointless, I would rather have been the afterbirth than the live mm-hmm. baby. Mm-hmm. Because at least if I were the afterbirth, I would not have experienced pain. Exactly mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that if people are going to be concerned about what's happening in the Ukraine, and rightly so, given my understanding of reality, I just like to push back and to say, given your understanding of the world, what is it that's that's making you upset after all it's a struggle for survival these ukrainians are essentially just biological organisms with advanced dna structures and they're striving to survive a life that ultimately has no purpose to it to begin with so i don't get what's the problem i mean you know wolves uh, kill rabbits all the time and you know Putin's mm-hmm. killing ukrainians what's the difference why not submit to the the ubermish that yeah that exactly. he is? why not why exactly the, the right it's all about power at the end of the day but i of course let me just say again that is not my view mm-hmm. but that's because i'm a christian theist mm-hmm. well and i think we need to unpack that idea you just mentioned jordan the ubermensch the Superman, because that mm-hmm. is at the core, I think, of what's driving Putin, what was driving Hitler, uh, what drives all despots at any level of mm-hmm. uh, of, of government or society. Uh, and and it, it really comes directly from Nietzsche, this idea that, you know, there are no no objective truths or moral values and, and the first person who can figure that, that out can rise above the masses who still think that stuff's real and follow laws and see other people as valuable. And the person who realizes, no, that's not true, can rise above and become mm-hmm. the, the ruler of all the rest who still have the quote unquote herd mentality that there mm-hmm. is this objective intrinsic value to people and, 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 and rightness and wrongness. 
And that was uh, the idea that Hitler uh, obviously embraced uh, very directly from Nietzsche. And I think Putin is mm-hmm. as well as uh, as both despots are seeking to say it is all about power and mm-hmm. I've got the power. So I have the right to impose my will on others. Absolutely. Thank you. That That is exactly right. And that that is what what Nietzsche meant when he said Christianity is Platonism for the masses. Mm-hmm. Now, let me explain, let me explain that. Uh, by, by Platonism, he meant the view in Plato that this world is not the ultimate real world. It's the unseen world. Plato did believe in God and, and objective value and purpose. So the thing that gives us purpose and meaning is the unseen world. Mm-hmm. But most people aren't going to read Plato, so Christianity comes along and packages that idea. Uh, instead of Plato's unseen world, you've got heaven. And mm-hmm. so Christianity communicates to the masses, as Stan put it, the herd, that don't worry, he's going to get his in the unseen world in the afterlife. You continue to do what's right and don't rebel. And so Christianity becomes an enabler of the ubermensch or the, uh, of the person who gets it first, as Stan said, and recognizes that power is what matters, not my character. And that lets them accept that a little bit better because they hold on to this view that we're, you'll get it in the end. Judgment will come. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is the worldview that you pointed out, Jordan, that while it goes goes back all the way at least to Solomon, there's no doubt that Nietzsche was the one who really put this on the map, even po- as you said, posthumously. Mm-hmm. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important professors are in the lives of students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to both non-Christian and Christian students that a person can be educated and still follow Christ, and they can have a lifelong influence as mentors. Please consider helping equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. You threaded a great needle there, JP, when you were talking about how Christianity utilized the narrative of Platonism to communicate to the the culture around them. It wasn't that Christianity adopted Platonism and thought, oh, this is a good idea. We'll just throw this in with. Yeah. You you made that distinction really clearly. I appreciate that. It's really helpful. Thank you for pointing that out. Well, what all of this talk that we're doing about nihilism, which, by the way, is not only timely, given what's happening in the Ukraine, because that ought to give us pause to to, to ask some questions about what justifies me 
in my outrage. But this is an issue that American and Western culture generally has refused to face up to, except for a handful of people that I think are just playing with it. Uh, it's key, sure, you know, it kind of makes you chic and kind of avant-garde. Oh, life's meaningless, you know, but uh, but um, that's why this is so important. And so it, w- we should ask, what needs to be true for there to be such a thing as meaning in life? Mm-hmm. I can tell you one thing, and that would be the idea that there is teleology, that is, things happen for a real purpose, and that uh, a supreme being created us with teleology, that we were put here for a purpose. And that's at least one condition that's absolutely, I think, crucial. Uh, And not every worldview has that. Yeah, it's just so interesting that all of these ideas are known by everyone implicitly. uh, And it's seen in the outrage and the judging of the actions of Putin and his henchmen to say that's wrong, that's that's vile, that ought not be all of these objective claims we're making, which are right, of -hmm. course, but Mm -hmm. yes, they're grounded in this broader anti-nihilist theology and philosophy of the world Mm -hmm. that understands there's a reason why all these things are, 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 why we have these reactions we do. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. I think it's wise to stop and just reflect on that. Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely, Stan. And, And when you do that, I mean, you've got to explain the fact that people naturally react to this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They, they, they are disgusted by it. Okay, what does that tell me or tell us? Mm-hmm. It tells me that people actually are made in God's image, whether they know that or believe that or not, doesn't change the fact. And what that means is that they have faculties that are moral, that have moral sensitivity, however dulled they can become and diffused by all kinds of lifestyles. But when, when a horrendous evil happens, that image of God tends to kick in unless you're so damaged inside that you can't feel anything. Right. And I just think it's kind of interesting how the doctrine of the image of God is, is made manifest so many times by precisely by what you said, these reactions that people just instinctively have without thinking about it because they're made a certain way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, one of the favorite books that you've written, I don't think it's one of your top 10 bestsellers, but it's the the recalcitrant Imago Dei. Yes, you make this right. point really well and draw out some of these implications. No, it wasn't a great seller. So I'll 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 commend that to our listeners. <laughs> Thank we'll you. call it a hidden gem and then it'll be famous momentarily. It, it's right. <laughs> it's interesting in uh, Romans 8, and I'm going to quote a bit of it here. In verse 20, it says, for creation was subject to futility, Mm. not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that all creation groans and suffers pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but that we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit even we grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. And 
there just a few lines later is where we get the famous passage that says God works all things together for the good for those mm. who are called according to his purpose. Boy, that's brilliant. That's good stuff. Oh, well, you know, it's an interesting story as well uh, is that because our Western culture, Europe is ahead of us in this, but we're rapidly catching up has, has reduced religion from something that could possibly be true to being something that just works for some people who need that sort of thing. And so consequently, as one, as one sociologist put it, religion in Western culture never rises above the level of a hobby. And as long as it's a hobby, you can do it. But if you try to bring it into the public square, now, wait a minute, mm-hmm. you don't push your hobby on us. Yeah, that opium of the masses. Well, and I saw so there's an article I read seven, eight years ago called Europe's Two Culture Wars. And this was one of the most brilliant pieces of, of cultural analysis I, I think I've ever read. I don't think the guy who wrote it was a Christian. I don't know. That is not made explicit. But, but he says the first culture war was lost, and that is causing Europe to lose the second culture war. So what were those wars? The first war was the war of theism against naturalism. And he said that the naturalist worldview has come now to dominate European society. Science is the way we know, and scientists are the priests of the, the new worldview, and theism lost. Well, what that did is it caused Europeans to not regard religion as anything more important than a hobby for, for groups of people that like tennis. Or, or like Christianity or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, the second war was with Islam. Mm. And all these Muslims are immigrating into Europe, and Europeans are asleep at the wheel, and the slow boiling of the frog is occurring because gradually these Muslims are transforming the, the various structures of European culture into Muslim-like cultures. Now, why is that happening? Well, Europeans... When they welcome Muslims into the country, they're just welcoming people that have a hobby. Mm. Yeah, no problem with that. God bless them. But unfortunately, the Muslims don't take Islam as a hobby. Right. <laughs> it is, it's, they are dead serious about it because they think it's the true religion that Allah gave them. Mm-hmm. Even though they're wrong in that, in my view, uh, they still take it that way. Mm-hmm. So they are driven by this in a way that Europeans just, they aren't prepared for that because they don't get it. And so they have allowed these people to start taking over the culture Mm -hmm. and they're losing that war because they misunderstand that their religion is not a hobby to them. Isn't that interesting? It is. It is. And it's as if the death of Christianity, as Nietzsche described, left a gap and They've tried to fill it with this and that, and as Americans are experimenting with now, and they've found no meaningful narrative. And so Islam offers a pretty robust narrative in comparison to what they're kind of playing around with right now, or truly what America is playing around with right now, too. Yes. Those kind of movements are just not a robust enough narrative to hold 
against something as powerful as nihilism or as powerful as Islam or as powerful as any of these other grand narratives that just, they'll just sweep away these no question. Kind of propped up things, and we we are entirely unprepared for it, just like the U- Europeans. Well, Stan, for decades now, I mean, maybe just shortly after Noah's flood, you've been working with <laughs> university students and professors uh, all over the world. And I'm one. I know that you've encountered people who claim to be nihilists, or at least by their implicit views. What have you found effective, if anything, in at least getting their attention, maybe not changing their mind, but waking them up a little bit? Is there anything you've done that that has sort of helped with that? Well, I I think probably the thing that we all uh, intuitively do when we are with a person who has a different worldview and and then they start to make claims that that we we know uh, are are true of the Christian worldview, but not their worldview. So uh, in, in this current situation, for instance, words come up all the time that just don't fit in a nihilistic framework or actually any framework besides a, a theistic framework. Uh, words like senseless violence or unprovoked violence, right? There's this sense that everybody has that no, these things going on now in Ukraine are senseless and unprovoked and, and, and wrong again. And so I just like to ask questions about why, why you would think that's the case. And C.S. Lewis has this great line somewhere where he argues that we have a hunger because there's such a thing as food. We've got thirst because there's such a thing as water. In other words, the, these natural desires we have for food, water, sense and meaning means that that kind of thing exists. Food exists, water exists, meaning exists. And so I've just found that sometimes asking questions can help the person realize, yeah, there, there is a reason I see this as senseless. So some of it is just, again, surfacing those assumptions and asking the right questions. In fact, a friend of mine, you know him too, Randy Newman has a great book called Questioning Evangelism where he does a great job of, of helping a person think through, how do I ask the right questions? And, uh, and if we ask the right questions, then I think we can help remind people that there is this grand story, this larger context that we all live in. And it's part of being created in God's image in his, in his world to obtain his ends. And that's why we're all so disgusted about what's going on in Ukraine, because we just know that it's just not the way it, it, it ought to be. And again, it's back to Ecclesiastes, right? That God has set eternity in their hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11, that we all learn, long for this eternity, that, that, that which transcends the here and now and gives, gives meaning and purpose and context. And so it's just being able to, uh, to help surface uh, explicitly those implicit understandings of, of, uh, of, of what, just what we know to be the case. So, so I, I might ask, you know, why, why believe that this, this is senseless? Why believe that this is uh, uh, wrong? Why uh, believe this is evil? Uh, tell me on your, your view, what makes it wrong, senseless or evil? Just help me understand why you, you have this reaction, given what you say you believe about the way the world is. Well, I, I think that's so good. And one thing that, that I've learned uh, from doing that 
is illustrated by something that happened to me years ago when I was giving a, an evening lecture, building a case for Christianity and the gospel to a pretty substantial a- audience at Claremont, graduate, uh, Claremont Colleges mm. out here in Southern California. And so I always try to have a Q&A after these things. And there were a lot of unbelievers in this audience. And, this, and I had made the point that if, uh, if we aren't made I- I- in the image of God, then we don't have anything in common that, that is equal and that matters, and so we shouldn't have equal rights. Uh, and this one uh, young man raised his hand and said, well, look, I don't care if God exists or not. We're still human beings. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, I-, I won't tell you where the conversation went, but I did make a point. But here's what I want our uh, viewers to, to learn. They are using human being in a really loaded sense that would make sense in my worldview but not an atheistic one. By human being, he meant, well, uh, uh, we're beings with, incre- with tremendous value, and we, we shouldn't do things to each other. And, 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 and we, we, we just as human beings have equal rights. But, but, I, but I, I reminded him, I said, you're using the notion of human being in a, in a morally and metaphysically pregnant way. But if your worldview is correct and you don't believe in God and, and you think science is, is our guide, then we're mere homo sapiens. And by that, I mean we are merely biological organisms of a certain kind. And so I don't see how you can get meaning built up out of an, an organism that is, at the end of the day, a collection of atoms and molecules with a certain structure that allows them to uh, metabolize, breathe, and feed, and so on. So, so be on the lookout. If, if there's a response, ask the question, well, that response makes sense in my view because I mean something very rich by such and such, in this case, being a human being. But I want to know how, how you could mean something other than just a material object that is biological. And if that's true, then I'm sorry, but that won't solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The famous passage that Nietzsche put forth, in, and it's actually in a book called The Gay Science, and it was published twice. So this is um, in the second edition. He says, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Hmm. How can we console ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? The holiest and mightiest thing the world has ever possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood from us? And yeah, as with most great lies, there's a hint of truth there. The truth there that holds is well-timed for this Lenten season. There was a point in history where that was true. It lasted for three days and, you know, who would wipe this blood from us that it ended up being the very one that we had killed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good point. It's such a powerful statement. And so as we look to, you know, so what is our antidote? What do we do in the face of, of nihilism and a crisis of meaning? We have our answer in the cross and resurrection of Christ as Christians Yes, And in these grand conversations that we can have with people, 
that draw them up and into the relationship that we are invited to because, because God died. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I might want to take that a little different direction. I, that, that's yes, a, please. That's a, that's a good point, but there's another point because I think when, when Nietzsche talked about the death of God, uh, he was actually not talking about God. He was talking about the concept of God. Mm. And what he meant was that the very idea of God no longer carries any power uh, in the public square of European countries, nor in the power centers of those cultures. So you don't go to uh, Tübingen and major in psychology and have to read Paul's anthropology to understand, I have a full education in uh, being a therapist. Uh, The scriptures are no longer consulted to, to make law or uh, in terms of running for election, so that the, the power centers of Europe, the, the universities, the, the, the media and the entertainment industry and so on, were utterly secular. And I think that in that sense, he was right, because Europe did become virtually a secular culture. Mm-hmm. And we are, as I've, I've written, we're, we're slouching toward uh, Europe (laughs) Mm -hmm. in this country. And uh, the take home for me on that understanding of the death of God is that it is important for Christians to to not simply read Christian books, but to read things and expose themselves to what is happening in the culture. We need to be culture watchers, but Mm -hmm. fundamentally, about the flow of ideas and their impact in culture. And that's why restoring uh, Christian thought to the local church is more than just a really neat little thing so we can smoke pipes and have these great conversations. Uh, it, it really has to do with our being appropriate ambassadors mm-hmm. in a culture where God is now basically dead in that sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad you made that point. I get so tired of hearing people say, you know, studying theology, philosophy, ideas is 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 not practical. It's not relevant. It's just ivory tower stuff. And, you know, we've just spent an hour talking about how ideas, a certain philosophy called nihilism, is driving world events that we're watching unfold in front of the, us. And, you know, when you when you start to understand these ideas, you realize that some of the things I thought were most impractical turn out to be most practical because it underlies everything else going on. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if we're not committed and as a people, believers ought to be more committed than others to understand ideas, both ideas that are true, true philosophy, true theology, and ideas that are false. And, and Lewis mm-hmm. said it better than anybody. He said, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it is such a mantra anymore in so many Christian circles that we just want to talk about the things that are, you know, practical to keep the cookies on the bottom shelf, all the different things said. And then we see things like this happen in our culture and we can't make sense of it. So uh, here, here, I couldn't agree more and um, more power to you and others who are who are helping mm-hmm. the church think better about all these issues. Well, back at you, Stan and Jordan, you too. And amen.
I'd like to close us with a line in the first Hobbit movie that I think would have made Tolkien proud. (laughs) So here's the line. Gandalf is being asked, why Bilbo? Why did you choose him? Here's his answer. So Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. I have found that it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Why Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps because I am afraid and he gives me courage. Mm. So I ask our listeners, invite a friend over, really listen to them, read an old book, swipe your card for a stranger's tank of gas, act out of abundance instead of scarcity. This is how Christ himself calls us to light up the darkness. So out of a sense of the fullness of meaning rather than the absence of it. We thank you all for joining us and hope you have a wonderful Easter season. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.